We must speak the truth about terror. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories, malicious lies that attempt to shift the blame away from the terrorists themselves. What happens? I tell you what happens. Blam! I have a window that looks directly at the World Trade Center, and I saw... No collusion! Shit's getting way too complicated for me. Welcome to The Antidote. This is Greg McCarran. And this is Jeremy Rothkeshaw. Okay, we are going to be continuing our Epstein-Maxwell case cover-up revisited um, and continuing to read from Relentless Pursuit, my fight for the for the victims of Jeffrey Epstein by uh, Bradley Edwards. And we read chapter 26 previously, and we got into the story of how Stanley Pottinger and David Boyes were brought directly into the representation of Epstein victims and the problematic elements of that in our last show and um, where his uh, what was revealed and what was left out basically of like Edward's uh, story of how that came to be. And we're going to continue um, reading from uh, more of Relentless Pursuit by Brad Edwards. We're going to be moving into chapter 27 this time and we're going to uh, continue to follow up on some of the uh, the themes that were um, identifying and laying into with regards to this series regarding Maxwell Epstein and revisiting some of the facets that have been discussed before but also haven't uh, had a ton of light shed on them at least from our perspective so yes all right and uh before we move into 27, back to New York uh, in Relentless Pursuit by Bradley Edwards, where uh, we finally see how they officially hook up. Edwards and Virginia, then Roberts, eventually Jufre, go back to New York to eventually really uh, officially hook up with, with David Boys and Stan Pottinger. But before we do that, just want to go right back to the beginning, actually, and just mention where we are beginning to look into that just uh, hit us in terms of the background of how Brad Edwards made his way into the case. So chapter three of, of Edwards' book, Relentless Pursuit, is titled Wild, and it's referring to Courtney Wild. And I'll just go from there real briefly in the beginning, and we won't go deep into the background here, but We'll just mention this to, to uh, begin to lay out where we are beginning to investigate, and we will uh, soon cover more deeply. Okay, quote, in June 2008, I was 32 years old and had just started my own law firm in Hollywood, Florida. It was Friday, June 13th, when I got a call from my mom's boss, Jay Howell. Jay was an attorney in Jacksonville, Florida, where I grew up. As one of the original founders of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, he was someone who had taught me what it meant to be a lawyer. He asked me if I had heard of Jeffrey Epstein. I had not. Jay explained that he had been contacted by a lawyer who represented crime victims on a pro bono basis. She had been contacted by someone with the FBI, and she referred the matter to Jay because he was the leading victim's rights attorney in Florida. Jay called me because the heart of the case was based in West Palm Beach and my office was nearby. Jay said that he didn't have much information other than that 
there was a 20-year-old girl who had been sexually assaulted by a powerful man in Palm Beach around six years earlier. It was a, it was a criminal matter, and this young woman needed an attorney. He'd just gotten off the phone with her and had given her my number. Her name was Courtney Wilde. Courtney called me and said she did not want to tell her story over the phone. I told her that if she wanted someone to talk to, she could come by any time. Thanks, she said, before hanging up. Unquote. So, and then it goes into how, then how the very beginning of Edward's involvement in the case and with Courtney Wilde originally took place. But we then have to then look at this Jay Howell, right? Who's actually the guy who fed the, this case to Bradley Edwards in a similar kind of fashion as you might say that the, that the connection with David Boys was done by Pottinger, Stan Pottinger directly, right? From these sort of out of place, strangely timed, uh, late night phone calls from Stan Pottinger to Brad Edwards that initiated Brad Edwards into the relationship with boys and Pottinger. He, Brad Edwards, this is how he proclaims he got involved in the case in the first place was a call from his mother's boss, Jay Howell. And we won't go deep into this right now, but just you can go find Jay Howell's current website about his uh, legal services, jhowell.com. And there are very specific photographs that he's chosen to put on the front page of his website here. And now, first of all, you also, Edwards says that he was the, one of the original founders of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. All right. Now that's, that's also obviously important because we know that there, this has been part of the, the management of these much larger and much deeper operations that involved kidnapped and exploited or trafficked children, even just in an American context over decades and the relationship with, with uh, deep black government programs, including MK Ultra. And these basically mind control sex slave rings that Epstein, the Epstein Maxwell operation is just one of the pieces of that much larger intergenerational operations that we are aware of and that has come front and center because of how high level and how open open it's now become in terms of the people who were involved in that but part of the main pieces of these programs is then how do you cover them up and obviously the question of missing children and and these official organizations that are involved in this way at a very high level uh in terms of investigating missing children that has been a key piece of the cover up obviously through decades it's one of the reasons why we've never heard these organizations have any kind of serious campaigns to alert the American people that there are children are being uh, deployed 
and trafficked in relationship to some of the highest level uh, powerful people in the country and in the world. And for what? And what is going on? And, the, and as I pointed out before, that this is not only the abuse of, of you know, the, the worst kind of uh, immorality and wickedness in terms of abusing children, but then it's that abuse that is then used to abuse the body politic and, and to compromise the, not only the, the politicians and to, and to uh, you know, ha- help decide who's going to get into certain positions and then to control their behavior and relationship to that, but then also just at a very deep level, the abuse and torture of the, uh, of the body politic itself. And so this is now, this has become very troubling in terms of even the background of how, who and how. Brad Edwards himself was brought into this case originally, uh, almost 15 years ago now. And so if you go onto this front page of Jay Howell's website, you see a, a, a photos that were chosen. And one obviously sticks out. It's a photo that says, To Jay Howell, with best wishes, George Bush. And in the photo, you see Jay Hal to the left, and then towards the right, second to the right, is uh, George H.W. Bush. And we haven't been able to identify any of the other four men that are there. But to the very immediate right of George H.W. Bush is a man holding a little doll and holding it in an inappropriate fashion in terms of where he's holding it is what it looks like to me. And this is very concerning in terms of what this, what is being signaled here. And then also there's a a choice of his, it looks like his bookshelf or something like that. And there's like a little, uh, a a figurine of like a, what looks to be like a, a little black girl standing there in, in the midst of other personal photos. It's just very, all very, very strange at the very least. And then you go into the background of, of Powell and he was key, uh, key uh, placement at key times here. You know, it basically, it, it, if you go to his about us section, you'll find out that he, in 1981, he was appointed by Florida U.S. Senator Paula Hawkins as chief counsel to the United States Senate subcommittee on investigations and oversight. He conducted Senate investigations and drafted federal legislation addressing the issues of missing children, child kidnapping, child pornography, and the investigation and apprehension of serial murders. And then it says, from 1984 until 1987, he founded and served as the first executive director of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. While serving at the National Center, Howell authored various publications concerning child safety and advocating a wide variety of state legislative initiatives designed to protect children. Unquote. And now that sounds really good on the surface, but then the featuring of George H.W. Bush as, you know, with thanks and all that and his position here at the, as the chief counsel of the U.S. Senate subcommittee in 1981 and then these years of 1984 to 1987. And we won't we won't go deep into this right now, but we'll just touch on. Right. Isn't the aren't these the key years in terms of the question of the Craig Spence? Um, child and and uh, child sex trafficking and and uh, gay prostitution ring in relationship to the highest levels of the U.S. government at that time and the white and access to the White House and and credible accusations against George H.W. Bush himself 
in relationship to to uh, to all these uh, rings, the question of the Franklin uh, cover up, and and then Craig Craig Spence's role in a even much larger ring. It looks like at that time. Remember, even George H. W. Bush was uh, had a direct personal relationship, I think, political relationship too with. Uh, Lawrence King, Larry King of the at the epicenter on the local basis uh, in Nebraska of the uh, Franklin Franklin quote quote unquote scandal, the Frank the Franklin child abuse ring, um, and compromise ring. So, all right, so this is this is all we'll touch on for now, but this then needs to be factored in in terms of the even the deeper background of Edwards being brought into this to this case. Uh, and that this was his mom's boss, Hal, who who had originally contacted him, and then Hal's role in all of this. So, yeah, and then just a little follow up on uh, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. I don't know what all of this means in terms of like bigger picture, but that is an organization that was basically um, formed by uh, John Walsh. John Walsh, the longtime host of uh, America's Most Wanted on Fox, and that was. Um, um, after his after his son had been uh, murdered, and so um, and I know as I said, like I'm just familiarizing myself with this as we go along here. I know that show has been used over the course of the last few decades for a lot of uh, propaganda purposes in terms of advancing narratives and the type of stuff that's uh, the cases that are covered on America's Most Wanted. So there's a whole history here with like uh, this is right at the epicenter of prominence in terms of like the popular narratives and um uh framing of the story of the of around um things related to exploited missing children and all this and the uh and the politics that come along with it the national center for missing and exploited children was officially opened by president reagan in a white house ceremony in 1984 and then one more little thing and this is uh potentially a problem based on that picture that you mentioned uh during the mid to late 1980s, the toy Teddy Ruxpin became the quote official spokesbear for the center at the height of his popularity. So, I mean, Whoa. that's just, just a little. That's just a little thing that, like, when you think about the deeper meanings of some of these um, potentially deeper meanings of some of the symbolic stuff. I mean, that's just it doesn't sound on the surface like it sounds a little little tad bit maybe on the disturbing side in terms of just symbolically and maybe it means nothing but i wanted to bring that in there because uh just to mention the uh the elements of uh america's most wanted and a lot of uh i remember height of september 11th it was at the at the forefront of like bringing you know the the perpetrators of september 11th to jessica among other things there's a lot of um connected uh politics in terms of like the popular framing of the narratives and the way we view things as a society through this national system. So I just wanted to bring that history in there and it's all coming out of the Reagan Bush era. So. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. And that, that, that's a very interesting point that you make about the Teddy Ruxpin and the nature of the symbology of all these things. So then this question of this picture where the man right next to George H.W. Bush in the same picture that's signed to J J uh, J J Hal is holding this doll. It's to symbolize what in a very you can go look at this. It's in a very inappropriate at the very least. I would say you know for all the the for all the talk 
for which is very uh, important in terms of the deeply inappropriate way that uh, then uh, Vice President or Senator Joe Biden was on camera treating children in terms of sniffing their hair and the way he would touch them in front of their parents. By the way, Greg, one of these, the most inappropriate, one of the most inappropriate ones is with uh, the uh, Coons, uh, Senator Coons from uh, Connecticut, I believe. His, I think it's with his daughter. Delaware. He's Delaware. Oh, Delaware. Delaware. Joe Biden State. Yeah. And Chris Coons was the one who uh, we tried to arrange to talk with at the, uh, I believe at the Iowa State Fair, and we ended up getting nowhere with him. That's exactly what popped in my mind is we had gone up to him at the Iowa. No, it wasn't the state. It was the uh, steak fry. Uh, it was the Iowa steak fry. Yes. Yeah. And he was, in, it, it was intercepted. We were just, we had our camera and a microphone and we were ready to just go right into it with him. And his press guy or his aide uh, was intercepted it and then, in a very similar kind of way as like we were actually sort of held off when we were in Washington, D.C. by uh, Congresswoman Tlaib, actually, where there was a, a promise of scheduling a proper interview, you know, because one of the things is sort of get, get criticized for quote unquote ambush journalism. Why didn't you actually do this properly and get a sit down interview and arrange a time and you know, and our experience with doing this with uh, Tlaib, we did it. I followed up exactly as they asked me to multiple times in writing and and never even got a response, let alone, uh, okay, now, now you're being denied a, a proper interview uh, over time. So there's an aspect, you can call it ambush journalism if you want to, but it's actually we the people press where we are on the scene, where it's not scripted. We're not going to be able to get into, and I've had this experience in other uh, dealing with things like September 11th, trying to make uh, you know, appointments to when when in D.C. to actually sit down with these people. This is the nature of access journalism. Now, certain critical journalists can get uh, an interview if they have a big enough uh, publication on their side. But almost always, nothing very, very seriously critical can make its way out of those interviews. And so those of us who are merely, quote unquote, civilians in relationship to our natural, God-given, uh, constitutionally protected press rights, we have to do it when we can, as proven out by our mistake in relationship to uh, Senator Coons, who allowed Joe Biden to be totally inappropriate with his daughter. Uh, on camera is what it looked like to me. And so we were held off and then, and then we were told, oh, it's not going to work. It's not going to work out. We'll have to, we'll have to do it another time. Okay. So thank you for, for remembering that, Greg, because that's, that is, that's, it was popping into my mind uh, there. And so that kind of, you know, so if, if Joe Biden's uh, totally inappropriate at the very least in relationship actions on camera, with under with children and, and of the children of his friends as you know his senatorial colleagues is inappropriate then there's something here too in relationship to the deep background of how this very central lawyer was the, the networks that brought him into the heart of the Epstein Maxwell 
uh, case in relationship to some of the victims. And this picture that's being featured there with the this man holding this doll in a very, uh, quote-unquote, inappropriate way. So there's a lot. And next to the man, again, once again, George H.W. Bush implicated, credibly accused in relationship to these exact same kind of, if not, you know, the same networks at, at some level. And so there, we just needed to, to uh, point that out and we'll go a little bit deeper into the background there. I just, for the time being, I want to just point out the, I'd say probably the best um, public resource of some of the background public information around this is uh, cavdef.org. Uh, things like the, you can go find there's a whole sections about Craig Spence and different uh, people in, in relationship to the things like the Franklin scandal, the Washington DC call boy ring. And then also John Brisson's investigations over the years into the finders is also uh, crucial to uh, feeding into uh, understanding of what all of this may mean. And we'll, we'll go deeper into the, the, the notorious Washington times article that came out in 1989, headlined Homosexual Prostitution Inquiry in Snares, VIPs with Reagan Bush. Callboys took, that's in quotes, callboys took midnight tour of White House. And there's a lot there. And of course, the, the, the nature of that publication, there's questions in terms of what potentially is being covered up there or being pointed away from or uh, you know, some aspect of a catch and kill. And uh, I just found uh, an article from the Washington Post immediately, it looks like in the wake of, of, the, of these revelations, also 1989 titled The Bombshell That Didn't Explode, that is about this exactly. And uh, so there's a lot there. So, but meanwhile, Greg, I'm going to get back into the article, the uh, chapter for today, um, uh, unless you want to make some. Uh, Closing comments for no, the time. No, I think we're ready to move into the chapter. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Okay. So we are now in chapter 27 of Relentless Pursuit, My Fight for the victim, Victims of Jeffrey Epstein by Bradley J. Edwards. 27, quote, back to New York. Although I had not told him that Virginia was in the country, Stan kept in touch. Unquote. On the side, that's Stan Pottinger that he's referring to. Okay. And this is going to be Stan Pottinger and David Boyce. Just a quick reminder. All right. Quote, Stan kept in touch and expressed that he and David wanted to meet her. We set up a date in July 2014 for her and me to fly from Florida to New York for a meeting. The entire plane ride up, I was picking Virginia's brain about the time she spent with her, quote, dysfunctional family, unquote from 2000 to 2002. She was confident that Epstein's New York butler, Jojo Fontanilla, would not only remember her, but also cooperate with her against Epstein. She told me of a time, unquote, by the way, is that, I, don't, I haven't looked at it, but the more and more of the investigation into Noam Chomsky is beginning to be done now. In, and I don't know if this is the a different uh, butler that that Chomsky uh, is appears with in photos, I think from a, a trip to France, actually. 
and Noam Chomsky has been gone to conferences that were spoken at conferences that were uh, apparently sponsored by Epstein was is part of the quote unquote literary network, the edge by done by John Brockman, which is the source of years and years of interface and photos showing exactly that between Epstein and the everyone of the who's who in Silicon Valley, where he's there, Epstein is there and often Maxwell too, but Epstein for sure, in terms of everyone from the founders of Google to the founder of Amazon to on and on and on, including the people who are seen as the sort of high level uh, computer scientists, uh, artificial intelligence, mathematicians, the same milieu that that Noam Chomsky really, in some level, really exists allegedly as some kind of a dissident voice. The the uh, the what we might call manufactured dissent, we I think would be appropriate way to talk about it. So and I don't know if this is the same Butler, but it might be. I, so we'll have to go back and and look at that. But I just want to point that out that it's Noam Chomsky who's appears in photos with Epstein's Butler. And so now we're talking about uh, an Epstein Butler who Virginia thought that was going to um, help her cooperate uh, against Epstein when uh, when they went to New York. All right. Page 197 of Relentless Pursuit by Bradley Edwards. Quote, she was confident that Epstein's New York Butler, Jojo Fontanilla, would not only remember her, but also cooperate with her against Epstein. She told me of a time before her 18th birthday when she was in Epstein's New York house in extraordinary pain. Jojo drove her with Epstein and Maxwell to a nearby hospital where a medical team attended to her immediately. Jojo had been there for her then and always would be. Oh, unquote. This is very painful, actually, because you know, the way, the, the way it's being described and where Virginia Dufre was sort of remembering when, she, you know, she was in massive pain because of the way she had been abused, I, I believe, and sex trafficked. And so she sees it as this butler who was trying to help her out and got her to medical help. And, but meanwhile, note that this medical team that helped her out, it didn't actually work to help expose this entire uh, sexual abuse network to free her from it. It only really served to help get her back in shape really for re-entrance back into her services for the network is what it looks like to me. So there's a lot of painful aspects to this, I think. All right. Back to Page 197 of Relentless Pursuit by Bradley Edwards. Quote, we spent three hours shuffling through hundreds of pages of evidence from the Epstein investigation. Before we landed, I asked her how she felt about tracking Jojo down to see what help he would give. She's, she said she would do whatever it took to move the case forward. Our flight arrived at LaGuardia at noon. We had four hours to kill before our meeting with David and Stan. We took a cab from JFK straight to East 71st Street. As we walked toward Central Park, Virginia looked to the right and instantly reacquainted herself with the mansion that sprawled across nearly an entire city block. 
It was obvious that she had been there many times. She recognized every square inch of the place from the outside in. The plan was for her to knock on the front door and ask for Jojo. Her fantasy was that he would come down the stairs and give her a big hug before saying he'd cooperate with her and thank her for coming and saving him from his indentured servitude. She believed he was a good person who would choose the right side over money. As we walked down the sidewalk coming closer to the door, she described the inside of the various portions of the house that we were passing. We approached the front door and saw video cameras outside. She described a video room where all the live images were monitored and recorded and stored for a certain period of time. I told her to look down to avoid her facial capture by the cameras. As we walked under the main security bulb, she looked up, against my advice, and extended both of her middle fingers, hoping that Epstein would eventually see the footage. It was a double F.U., impulsive and straight from her heart. But when I looked at her, she had tears streaming down her face, and I knew, I knew we couldn't stop at the front door. We walked to the end of the block. Virginia told me it was better for her to go to the door alone, and I agreed. I handed her the USB recording device, and she put it in her top shirt pocket. I waited across the street and watched as she walked up to the giant front door and started knocking. I was standing behind a car in front of the public library close enough to see her, but far enough to not be seen. A woman opened the front door. Virginia talked to her but did not enter. The interaction lasted about three minutes. The door eventually closed and Virginia called me on my cell phone, unsure where I had gone. She was still shaking when I met her at the end of the block. It had been more than a decade and yet this building was so ingrained in Virginia's memory it caused her to have a physiological response when she came near it. Her re-entry into the perimeters of Epstein's world had brought back the memories that had caused her to flee the country more than a decade earlier. But there was also another emotion at play. She told me that the woman said she'd informed Jojo that Virginia was there to see him. The woman had closed the door and then, after a few moments, opened it again and told Virginia that Jojo did not want to see her. The only person in the Epstein household she thought had a heart big enough and kind enough to come to the door had refused to see her. Virginia understood that his doing so would have gotten him in trouble with his boss, but that did not matter, not now, not here. Right or wrong, she was genu genuinely surprised and disappointed by his snub. She was also relearning a lesson she'd learned many years before, but in the excitement of high expectations had forgotten. In Epstein's world, money trumped friendships. While this was disappointing to Virginia, it was an important gesture for me to see. She was willing to go into the lion's den. It convinced me further of her credibility and determination. Without my prompting, she asked, quote, how close are we to 301 East 66th Street, unquote. This was the address of the apartments which Maritza Vasquez had explained were where Epstein stashed his girls. 
I asked Virginia what she was planning to do once she got there. She said the girls would talk to her because they were going through everything that Virginia had gone through. I told her that the only girl who I knew still lived there was Nadia Martinkova. So she went to the building and asked the doorman for Nadia. He was well trained when it came to the privacy of the residents of the 301 building. He said he could not confirm whether Nadia was there and that he would need to inform her of Virginia's credentials. He took the information, made a phone call, and then told Virginia that he could not help her. Unquote. Just briefly here, it definitely shows, this definitely shows, you know, the, the psychological and emotional courage of, of Virginia Roberts than Jufre. And Edwards makes it seem like it, it's sort of like, oh, it makes, makes her more credible to me in terms of as a client. But you can also imagine it shows how eventually as we're working towards Virginia being then delivered via Brad Edwards into the boys' Pottinger dirtied up network that that ultimately then there's a, a sense of who they are going to have to handle the nature of the of the courage of the client in which they're going to have to handle too so that's one way of also looking at it and then by the way this other this other uh, apartment building that they're going to on on 60 uh 66th street 301 East 66th street that's the building that I believe is was sort of put in the name of of Jeffrey Epstein's brother, and it's also the building where the notorious incidents of uh, former prime minister, former head of Israeli military intelligence, Amman, former head of the uh, the Israeli army, Ehud Barak, and his guys would like were known to sort of sprawl out in the lobby when they were there in New York and interfacing with, with Epstein. And, uh, and so Edwards does not mention that. All right. Back to the text, unless you have any uh, comments, Greg. Nope. All right. All right, we're at the bottom of page 199 of Relentless Pursuit, My Fight for the Victims of Jeffrey Epstein by Bradley J. Edwards. And by the way, the, the book is written, it says with Brittany Henderson, that's Bradley J. Edwards' uh, um, assistant or, or his uh, co-worker. So I apologize actually for not having uh, acknowledged her co-authorship in this. And it's possible she actually did the, the most of, of the actual uh, textual work uh, in terms of this and Edwards then sort of massaged it and all of that was probably ultimately responsible for what made its way into the book. All right, quote, with more time available before going to the boys Schiller Flexner office, Virginia took me to other places in the city she had frequented, including the Victoria's Secret store where Epstein often took Virginia and other young girls to purchase lingerie. After this field trip, it was time for the meeting. 
unquote. Now, just real look at this. This is this right here is an example of exactly what we covered a few episodes back in terms of the issue of where did Les Wexner go? Where did the, 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 the central role of Les Wexner go? Whether we're talking about how Virginia Dufresne was visiting the brownstone, the Epstein brownstone that had been delivered to him via Wexner with cameras already installed in it. Now, maybe there was updates in terms of the recording systems while Epstein was there, but it had already been pre-wired for this when it was delivered from Wexner to Epstein. And Edwards makes no mention of it there when they're there. And then he makes no mention, just glossing over Victoria's Secret, why Victoria's Secret is so central. It's not just because it's a lingerie store. No, it's because it's Les Wexner's company. And he doesn't even mention it. So obvious, I'd say obviously there's an issue here in terms of even the text, this, this book is playing out in a way that confirms exactly what the issue was that, uh, that, uh, dirtied up, uh, uh, Alan Dershowitz was dealing with in his book in terms of what's up with, uh, with the, the Virginia's lawyer's relationship with Les Wexner. Where did the Les Wexner accusations go to the point of where Edwards even just it doesn't even include basic f- backing facts in relationship to these locations about why they are crucial to the Epstein network. Doesn't you didn't even have to like make accusations or you know uh, against Wexner, but so obviously there's some kind of it looks to me like there's some kind of operative deal here in relationship to not even really mentioning Wexner at these crucial factual junctures in terms of the story of terms of Virginia's story in relationship to Edward. So the, the, again, very, uh, lots of issues there. All right, back to the text. We're at the top of page 200 of Relentless Pursuit by Bradley Edwards with Brittany Henderson. Quote, we checked in at the front desk, but without Stan as an escort, access wasn't so easy. After taking our identification, which Virginia was an Australian passport, security allowed us access to the elevators. It was still somewhat unnerving that this was the building where Darren Indyke, Epstein's personal lawyer, had his office. We got off the elevator at the seventh floor and told the boy Schiller Flexner receptionist that we were there. A few minutes later, Stan and David both entered through the glass doors behind us. Virginia and I stood up. She had a way of not being impressed by anyone, and this was no different. David led us into his large conference room. He was at the head of the table, but he had not sat for more than a second before Virginia started her spiel. Thanking him for his help, and telling him that she had stayed silent for too long. She told him that she was here to stop Epstein once and for all. David, relaxed but methodical, listened to her patiently. He already had some background on Virginia from Stan, and wanted to hear directly from her what she had experienced with Epstein, and what her intentions were going forward. Knowing Boyce's time was limited, 
Virginia kept her summary brief, not expanding much beyond what she had alleged in her original Jane Doe 102 complaint. That was enough to get David's attention. In essence, she was recruited as a teenager by Ghislaine Maxwell to be trafficked by Epstein. Now she wanted to be a part of undoing Epstein's non-prosecution agreement. I then chimed in about the mechanics of making that happen. Quote, it appears obvious Brad has everything well under control. Where do you see me fitting in? Unquote, David inquired. I responded, quote, Epstein should be in jail. My goal is to put him there. He will do anything to stop me. He has a powerful team behind him and unlimited resources to go after me and Virginia and anyone who stands up to him. I'm going after him, but when he and his team fire, we're going to need a heavyweight legal team to counter their attacks. There will be plenty of room for you, unquote. David reacted quickly. Quote, okay, then I'm in, unquote. End of the chapter. Sounds like there's a bit of a grilling going on in terms of um, boys and his questions about what was looking to be accomplished were sufficiently answered, whatever. So it sounds to me like um, there were, there was a, a bit of a bit of inquisitiveness about you know what are you trying to accomplish with this and the answer and the questions are are answered to what I guess would be considered a satisfactory conclusion and and so and and interesting exactly what the and the motivation of course Edwards talks about like this desire you know I want to bring this down and, it, and that was found to be um, uh, acceptable and worthwhile endeavor for him to sign his name onto. So I just picked up on that. Yeah. And what's interesting is that the, the, the way that Edwards narrates it, it's David Boyce asking Virginia directly. He, David says, David Boyce says, quote, it appears obvious Brad has everything well under control. Where do you see me fitting in? Unquote, David inquired. So he's talking about Brad Edwards in the third person. So he's, it seems like he's directing the question to Virginia and Edwards then jumps in to answer it for her. And, and it's not like boys is sort of even in this thing that he's actually like trying to, um, is, is it worthy of me, your intent? It's more of like, is there room for me? That's, and that's ultimately how Edwards then explains it. Like, I want to put uh, Epstein in jail, but we're going to need uh, backup, serious firepower and uh, legal firepower in order to get to hold back Epstein's forces. And so then we need this heavyweight legal team. So there will be room for you is the way that Edwards couches, phrases it. By the way, Edwards also phrases it as Virginia's quote unquote spiel, not her story. Not her uh, remembering and telling the her version of the facts, but her sh her spiel to to David Boys, and so there's there's an undermining a little bit in terms of the way that even Edward seems to talk about Virginia's role in this. I I would think 
And then, and then Brad Edwards, we don't, we don't hear where Virginia, what Virginia thinks in relationship to David Boyes playing quote unquote hard to get or justify to me why I should be involved in this. We don't hear her response. All we hear is Brad Edwards jumping in to answer David's Boyes' question, apparently to her by saying, we'll have room for you. And I even think of like, I think of like Silicon Valley and like room in the cap table, really. And so ultimately you begin to think about, you know, payoffs and, and settlements and money. And is there going to be enough room on the, in the cap table, the capital table, ultimately. Now it's phrased as a way of, is it, you know, Brad Edwards has this legally under control. What do you need a David Boy's high powered law firm? And Edwards explains, we're going to need this in defense against Jeffrey Epstein's attacks. And that makes uh, sense. But then ultimately, we'll have room for you, seems then to suggest, a, you know, a, a, an aspect of uh, room in, on the on the cap table for you. That's what I, that's my sense of it. And then David Boyd just immediately says, okay, then I'm in. And, and this all doesn't, you know, this is again, you know, finishing up with the way that the previous chapter was finished by Edwards in a totally unsatisfactory way in terms of a paragraph or two of him allegedly logically considering all of these red flags and his gut feeling that there was something wrong in relationship to the way that he was being approached by uh, Pottinger and then ultimately boys. And then just not telling the, re the, the reader anything about the facts or the logic behind why he decided to get over his gut instinct of how he even might be murdered. You remember, he like had a sense of like, okay, I'm now in David Boyes' conference room. All right, it's in the same billing, building as Epstein's main lawyer, Darren Indyke. But at least now that I'm in this main conference room in this big um, New York legal firm, I probably will have, this is probably a weird place to murder me. Okay. But meanwhile, he still had a sense of they're trying to extract information or how did they know, how did they seem to know that, that Virginia was coming into the country in terms of this timing and all of this, none of that gets explained. And then the next chapter, it's sort of like, okay, now we've sealed the deal. And it's never really explained either in terms of, okay, well, what did Virginia think about David Boyes? And him entering into it. Was there room at the table for, for uh, boys in terms of what the way Virginia thought about it after her, what Edwards called her quote unquote spiel? So the, a lot of issues here. Now, the next chapter is titled Virginia, and it goes into uh, the, the deeper background of, uh, of Virginia's uh, uh, history and how how it all came about in relationship to her uh, to Epstein Maxwell and her fa and the background of her in terms of her family and all of that and now the, that that kind of information is available out there i think uh, where in not in a a published book so we're going to skip over that and then we're going to move and we're going to skip over Nobody is Safe, too, which is about the background of how they were working to um, get the Crime Victims' Rights Act case um, back in gear in terms of what was apparently a, a, an unjust, if not illegal, deal that was made with the federal prosecutors by Epstein 
and his people. And we're going to jump right to a chapter about a title Dershowitz. Okay. Chapter 30, Dershowitz. Quote, in addition to Epstein and Maxwell, two other individuals surfaced into In Virginia's account who seemed relevant to the CVRA case she was looking to join. Prince Andrew was one of them. That aspect of Virginia's story discussed how she was internationally trafficked by Epstein and Maxwell. Alan Dershowitz was the other. He was important because he was not only one of Epstein's attorneys when the unprecedented NPA was secretly crafted, immunizing Epstein and all co-conspirators, but according to witnesses, he was also a friend and house guest during time periods when Epstein was sexually abusing minors. By late 2014, we had accumulated testimony and evidence of a personal relationship between Dershowitz and Epstein. But until talking with Virginia, the information we knew about Dershowitz didn't seem important to the CVRA case. Of course, it was offensive that he would discredit Epstein's child victims to make sure Epstein stayed out of trouble. The fact that he so respected Epstein, a serial molester and abuser, was concerning. And it was beyond frustrating that he would not sit for a deposition so we could question what he saw during his relationship with Epstein. But as close as it seemed, he and Epstein were, nobody had ever specifically identified him to us as someone involved in Epstein's other lifestyle until Virginia. In assessing how much detail the court needed to know about Virginia's involvement with Epstein in order to make a ruling on her ability to join the CVRA case as Jane Doe III, we were extremely conflicted. Our focus was on the criminal acts of Jeffrey Epstein. We were not looking to unnecessarily expand the scope of the investigation or make the case messier than it already was. We felt, however, that we did, not need, we did need to explain to the court what made Virginia's account different from the current petitioners in the case, which was her frequent travel on Epstein's jet while she was undeniably underage, highlighted by her introduction to British royalty while a child and her knowledge of one of Epstein's friends, who also happened to be one of Epstein's lawyers at the time the NPA was devised. Virginia didn't just come in and out in and out of Epstein's world through the side door of his Palm Beach mansion for an hour at a time like most of the other victims whose stories Judge Mara was familiar with. She traveled with Epstein and Maxwell for two years. She was intimately familiar with the inner workings of the operation and the expansive jurisdiction of the criminal organization. And through her accounts, she offered a fuller explanation for why the sneaky deal was made to save Epstein. Unquote. Just a, a quick point here. One is about, the, he talks about the, Edwards talks about the, they didn't want to unnecessarily, they were conflicted, he said, because they didn't want to unnecessarily expand the scope of the investigation or make the case messier than it already was. Okay. All right, uh, there's certain things that are on the surface understandable in terms of working to focus on the single individual, Epstein. But then specifically, the crimes that you suspect this, this man of making 
then you start talking about the controlling the expansion of the scope. In my ear, I hear things like the role of Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein in making sure that he limited the scope of the quote-unquote Trump-Russia Mueller investigation. And then, of course, Rosenstein, after he was out of office, right back to a law firm that was working as legal counsel to the Israeli military intelligence founded NSO group, Pegasus Spyware, so deeply implicated in high-level national security threats, human rights violations, all of that. And then, and so when you begin to think back on Rosenstein, Rod Rosenstein controlling the scope, he was the one actually on paper controlling the scope of the quote unquote Trump Russia investigation that we know is way beyond just Trump Russia. And then moving directly into uh, a firm with a direct legal contract with the NSO group where we know the relationship of these high-level Israeli intelligence cutout firms that were involved in quote-unquote Trump Russia all the way back through 2016 and before even. And, and then definitely during the time of, 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 uh, of Trump and then beyond, NSO crucial player in all of that. So there's a conflict of interest there in terms of the limiting of the scope, the control of the scope of the investigation that I f- get a sense is resonant with what we are now uh, reading and understanding in relationship to the controlling of the scope of the, of the investigation, the legal case against quote unquote Ep- Jeffrey Epstein. Now, the other thing about this is that the, you remember that the one of the the first touch points for Pottinger and Boys in relationship to the timing of the contact with Edwards was Pottinger asking about whether there was someone who had been. It sounded like there was trafficked internationally. All right, now I don't know the legal details of all this. But the United States, we have our own laws in terms of interstate criminality. That's where the federal government has, uh, I think a lot of it's based on the Commerce Clause in relationship to the Constitution, that the federal government, this is where you get into the question of beyond trans-state crimes in, in an American domestic uh, context, in a federal context, is in relationship to interstate trafficking. You can think about drug trafficking or weapons running interstate or even think about interstate in terms of quote-unquote rioting, right? That's where even things like the, the 1968, the Chicago 8 trial came out of this idea of, uh, you know, uh, interstate, I believe, in terms of organizing uh, uh, beyond state uh, boundaries. That was even a question of whether it might come into the Kyle Rittenhouse case, I think. Uh, was about questions of weapons uh, moving past state borders and stuff like that. So is it really the case that the United States, that we don't have any uh, child trafficking laws that, that kick in if, if, uh, if you take a, uh, an, an underage victim across state lines? So why? I, I imagine there is. I think there was even part of the, uh, this was even part of the Ghislaine Maxwell federal suit was conspiracy to traffic and that part of it had to do with intent in relationship to 
what the, the you know, the flight to uh, New Mexico of, in terms of uh, the farmers, I think, or, or, or other victims, right? So this is another question here about why, why this attention by boys and Pottinger specifically to focus on the international aspect of this and specifically sort of, uh, some kind of focus around uh, Prince Andrew and away from these domestic elements, especially someone like Wexner. Especially, and not just obviously, but the into the highest levels of people in our government, which again, which is why this background of Jay Powell that Edward says was his mom's boss who brought him into this with a phone call originally back in 2008, why all of that is becomes immediately important in considering the nature of this legal case now continuing on in relationship to uh, Virginia Dufre and and others and why the now the focus on on Andrew yeah it seems like a focus on a combination of a quote unquote safe in some ways foreign figure but then also a combination of staying away from um important aspects of this domestic element combined with um, how this domestic element fits into a certain unsafe uh, foreign entity to um, to address and um, perhaps get to the bottom of the role of and of course that being through names like uh, Wexner of course you go back to you go back to Israel and I just even even thinking about that was um, just allude to this real quick and mention this and then we'll uh we'll move on and maybe bring it up again in the future but uh recently you alerted me to um this new uh, zev shalev uh, narrative um program about the role of lincoln's bible who was a primary um researcher featured on his uh podcasts and his programs over the last couple of years basically omitting um it was a catch and kill with uh, with cnn in terms of uh, covering and getting a major story out about the um Epstein investigation that had been going on, but in the process of that, um, Lincoln's Bible convincing us that she love to take out a portion of a conversation with um, Ari Ben Menashe about Bill Clinton being sensitive and um, around the or the Israel Palestine issue. So uh, there's a that's just another aspect element of um, the combination of domestic interests and in conjunction with um, this particular foreign element that has been uh, left out of, it seems to be left out of so much of this uh, narrative in favor of saying going after the Prince Andrews of the world she brought up. Very good point. And it's one of the reasons why if you go look at the nature of our, the coverage and analysis that we've done at the antidote over the years in terms of this case specifically, that we have had a consistent focus on the question of the the why, the why of the Epstein-Maxwell compromise operation, which is why we, along with just a handful of people, including someone like John Swin, who was really on this fairly early on in terms of these Trump years, of the focus on Wexner and the network that surrounded Wexner. And why we've always focused back onto the geopolitics of all of this, the why, why we focus so much on Wexner's, Wexner's analysis with Frank Luntz, an Arthur Finkelstein kid, in terms of the PR propaganda in relationship to the Iraq war and the questions of the Israel lobby, 
chapter 8 of Mearsheimer and Walt, chapter 8, the Iraq war in relationship to the Israel lobby, how core the totality of the Israel lobby, including the quote-unquote liberal Zionists and all that, to almost to a one in terms of these organizations were all in support of the Iraq war, while the general Jewish community, grassroots Jewish community in the United States was against the Iraq war uh, in, in a majority, basically higher than almost any other uh, individually identified religious or ethnic group in the United States. And then also why this question of uh, Epstein on flights uh, to with, with Nicole Junkerman to the, uh, you know, to a Wexner Manor in the hills outside of the uh, British NSA, the GCHQ, in the run-up to the Iraq war was so, was so crucial too. So the, we've always focused on the geopolitical implications of this that then also included the question of Israel-Palestine and the, the, the further compromise of someone like Bill, Bill Clinton. And these are the kinds of geo-implications that have things like thousands, if not millions of human lives in, in the tilt. So I question anybody who who's, tries to undermine the focus on the geopolitical implications of things like starting aggressive warfare, the highest international crime post-Nuremberg, or questions of this key issue of Israel-Palestine uh, in, in relationship to both the, the rights of the Palestinian people that have been trampled on for decades, if not up to 100 years, really. Um, but also the larger national security, international geopolitical interests that are associated with something like someone like Lincoln's Bible trying to suppress this very key aspect of the question of Bill Clinton in relationship to the Palestinians and the quote unquote peace process. Yeah, and um, it's the it gets to the bottom of I think this helps to get to the heart of the combination of um, why the compromising and uh, morally and otherwise of our system, elements of our system leads to um, obviously the major role in the complicity of um, governmental figures otherwise in um, taking part in and aiding and allowing basically not use uh, these criminal operations on a foreign, on a global scale to take place in large part because of the uh, of the of the compromising that takes place in a number of different ways economic uh, moral otherwise and also uh, one more thing i was thinking about there as you mentioned uh, this uh, is that in addition to geopolitical this is all interconnected you, get, you have the combination of the geopolitics then you have the combination of also understanding perhaps helping to and talk about this a little bit with the bipartisan nature of like uh, keeping the israel uh, palestine conversation under control basically through maybe like the role of um this uh you know selectioner element with with epstein and obviously Ehud barack and also even the bipartisan element of how these uh networks work in terms of uh republicans and democrats even i was even thinking through the form of not only Les wexter but then also uh max fisher the longtime michigan-based uh, gop uh, kingpin so there's a lot to um that could be understood through uh, really digging in deep to the combination of the geopolitics the compromising and the players that are seem to be at the forefront involved in um 
a tainting in some ways and a compromising of our political system going back decades, which of course is um, really kicked into hyper high gear, obviously post-Citizens United, the post-influx of uh, unlimited foreign amounts of money being brought in, but the domestic elements in place for a long time to um, ensure this uh, continued uh, compromising in a number of ways, which has so many effects on our domestic politics, but then also obviously in terms of how um, criminal operations activities are allowed to take place as the guardians of our system are nowhere to be found or, or either worse or complicit in it themselves due to a number of uh, areas of control and compromise and um, in the uh, financial elements and, and otherwise through the likes of, say, a Wexner on one side or Max Fisher on the other side. So I just thought of that. Uh, and it's just the the consequences of not addressing these things continue are just so um, – just another example of the large number of consequences of not addressing these uh, important, crucial power networks and how they're operating and how even the way the Epstein investigation is framed is allowing these power networks to continue largely unabated. Yeah. And you bringing up Max Fisher makes me just then want to give another shout out to John Swin, who was on the beat of the intergenerational aspect of what was, you know, the so-called mega group. Obviously, a serious Zionist billionaire network that there was an intergenerational and an organized crime aspect to that, that via most obviously someone like Wexner at the epicenter of that was really important in understanding the nature, the geopolitical intent of at the very least a major piece of the Epstein Maxwell network. And, and it was John Swin that really began highlighting the even the 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 father of the Max Fisher uh, crew uh, of, of, a, of a high level role in terms of influence in the, the U.S. government, which was uh, Sam, Samuel Zamuri, the banana king, crucial figure who will return to again, who was the generation right before who helped bring in people really at some level, like people like Max Fisher into then what then became sort of known as the mega group. But it was Samuel Zamuri, of course, who's the idea of a banana republic, that whole concept, or the idea of the, the coup in, uh, in Guatemala in 1954, crucial early, quote-unquote, CIA coup that was uh, grounded via the CIA but was really commanded at some level by people like uh, Zamuri and then aided by people like Edward Bernays, uh, Freud's nephew and the father of uh, of the PR industry and thinking now and wrapping this thought up in terms of the current PR industry of so-called journalists like Maggie Haberman, the touch point for the New York Times in during the Trump years now coming out with a book way after the fact and by the way being supported publicly by someone like Julie Brown, the Julie Brown, the sort of key journalist of the, as we pointed out before and read from her book in terms of the Epstein Maxwell case and, uh, and pointing out the background of Maggie Haberman's family's PR relationship with all these kinds of characters, including Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump and the whole, the whole litany really. And so PR continues to be, uh, be a key player in, in relationship to things such as, quote-unquote journalism 
and those who might support quote unquote journalism after the fact too late. Actually, maybe potentially misprision, misprision. You know, there's this, there's a similar kind of thing in the law that you have a certain amount of, of rights in terms of the attorney client privilege around the certain things that cannot be disclosed or inquired into by force of law in terms of the uh, the private relationship and disclosures between a client and and a lawyer but it does not include the organizing of breaking of the law you're not allowed to use law, uh, cl- you know attorney client privilege in order to continue either continue or initiate further criminal acts uh, or breaking the law or conspiracy to in uh, to break the law, which is then that's where you get into uh, criminality versus just unlawful. Something can be unlawful, but then it's about the intent. Is there intent to break the law? That's when you get into criminality. And so similarly, there's a question of journalists. The journalists also have, there's a, it's not as legally inscribed as, uh, and deeply legally protected as the attorney client privilege, but journalists and their sources or their observations are protected to some extent in relationship to inquiry, but not quite as much. But there's also a question of like, if, you, if for example, Maggie Hayman apparently is coming out now with the uh, information that the Trump, Trump people were flushing documents down the toilet during the time there. Now it's turning out that some of these documents that have been finally given up, some of them were ripped apart and the, the uh, National Archives has become a crucial player in all of this and returned documents that had to be pieced back together. But Maggie Haberman was saying she apparently had a source or something like that at some point back in the past that uh, the Trump administration was flushing documents down the toilet. Now, some of these documents are apparently above top secret obvious there's criminal criminal implications there there's no way that someone uh doesn't know that uh holding on to a document or trying to get rid of a document uh that especially those that have a top, uh, na- you know national security implications top secret or above top secret kind of implications that's obviously criminal intent everyone knows the, at that level you're read into the fact of the of the nature of the law that there's certain preservation that you're obligated to as a someone in the White House, as a president. And then also you obviously, there are certain kinds of security obligations that, that you have too in terms of these documents. So Maggie Haberman eventually ends up looking like she's playing a role of using quote, her role as a quote-unquote journalist in a similar kind of way that mafia lawyers are use their attorney client privilege to sit on on information that would basically prove out criminal intent about crimes ongoing until after the fact and and held in a way that can then be sort of put into a publishing form and so this is part of what we're doing here in terms of reading these these sources of these core people whether it's Julie Brown as the you know the 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 the, the, the journalist that was referenced by the by the U.S. attorney who picked the Epstein case back up, or Bradley Edwards, who who's the key attorney who's a, representing the 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 victims uh, over the long term, and looking at exactly what is being um, covered up in terms of the text itself, or what role in the cover the ongoing cover up 
uh, especially in relationship to the public mind, that these roles of quote unquote journalists, and, and I would assert actually playing a role of what would be called PR in, in a similar way that there's a question of, you know, where these attorney client privileges are being used in certain ways that potentially look like they begin to head in the direction of where it crosses a line in terms of not only the public's right to know about matters of the public interest, in terms of what I said before, the abuse of the body politic in the midst of this, but also the, you know, potentially crossing lines around things that are ongoing conspiracies, uh, you know, and we don't have proof of that, but it begins to be very worrisome at the very least. All right, let's return to the text and finish up this chapter, and, uh, and then we will return to these subjects in, uh, in future episodes. All right, we're on page 221 of Relentless Pursuit, My Fight for the Victims of Jeffrey Epstein by Bradley J. Edwards with Brittany Henderson. Quote, She was intimately familiar with the inner workings of the operation and the expansive jurisdiction of the criminal organization, and through her accounts, she offered a fuller explanation for why the sneaky deal was made to save Epstein. There was another category of victim to be added to the CVRA case whose rights were not yet represented. These were the dozen or so individuals whom we identified as victims of Epstein's underage sex abuse, but who, because the government elected to stop investigating and instead enter into this broad immunity agreement, were never formally identified by the government as victims. Before deciding to add Jane Doe 4 to represent the interests of that subcategory, we informed the U.S. Attorney's Office about her and several others who were similarly situated remember that phrase, who were similarly situated and who wanted to prosecute Epstein for the crimes he had committed. Because the government, having stopped its investigation, did not know their identities at the time the non-prosecution agreement was signed, or even eight months later when Epstein made his plea in state court, there could not possibly be any restriction against filing a new indictment against Epstein for those newly discovered crimes committed against these newly discovered victims right? Despite our urging, the government refused to bring charges on behalf of these victims. While they would not commit to the position that Epstein's NPA was the reason they refused to bring those charges, they offered no other explanation, leaving us to believe they were using the NPA as cover to avoid prosecuting him. We then felt strongly that it was important to join Jane Doe 4 at the time we moved to join Virginia Roberts in the CVR, CVRA case. We decided to file the Jane Doe number 3 and Jane Doe number 4's motion pursuant to Rule 21 for joinder in action, unquote, the day before New Year's Eve. We had hoped that the filing would go unnoticed, and it almost did, with the exception of one studious reporter. On December 31, 2014, Josh Gerstein published an article in Politico in which he detailed the filing focusing primarily on the allegations of sexual misconduct that Virginia had made regarding Alan Dershowitz, Prince Andrew, and Glenn Maxwell. Dershowitz was quoted in the article as saying that Virginia's allegations were, quote, totally made up and totally fabricated from beginning to end, unquote. Dershowitz's loud denial was not unexpected. We even expected for him to go on the attack against Virginia. What we did not expect was where he took his attack next. 
The first few days of 2015 were something straight out of a movie, one in which Dershowitz, Dershowitz has decided to cast me as the villain. Unquote. End of the chapter 30 of Relentless Pursuit, My Fight for the Victims of Jeffrey Epstein by Bradley J. Edwards with Brittany Henderson. And the next chapter is 31. is titled Running Interference. And I think this would be motivated by going back to what we talked about before when we read from uh, Dershowitz's book of Dershowitz. Um, combination of, I think we talked about motivation potentially, of number one, uh, covering his own self, so to speak, in terms of the allegations made against him by Virginia Roberts. And then also the bigger goal potentially of trying to discredit or cast doubt on these um, on these victims of high-powered um, figures, whether it be international figures of espionage like Jeffrey Epstein or people more in the direction of Hollywood or um, big business finance that have connections to, um, that are very much connected to Israel and this global um, global network of powerful Zionist-oriented specific uh, operations. So I sense that it's more of that following up on what we read from uh, when Dershowitz was uh, going on the offensive about David Boyes and uh, Les Wexner from what we read in his book going on here with uh, Dershowitz making Edwards out to be a villain and all. But that would be, it seems to me, would be the motivation for that. All right. Well, we'll leave it here now for this episode and we will return next time. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Thank you, everybody out there. Thanks for uh, listening. Thanks for supporting us. And until next time, Antidote, we are out. All right, thank you.